Well, good morning, everybody. We're in Mark 9. And we'll take verse 1 through 13 today. I feel like we were in Mark 8 for about six months. God's doing a new thing in our house, Mark 9. <laughs> so, Father, in Jesus' name, as we come to your word, we come with uh, desperation, expectation. We ask that your voice, Lord, would settle upon this house. We believe this is the breath of the Holy Spirit. Have your way with us. Mold us, shape us, cleanse us, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said amen. This morning we come to probably the most fascinating passage. Um, well, to me, I think it's the most fascinating passage in the Gospels. Um, the moment where Jesus takes the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration and his glory is fully expressed. Uh, we'll take a look today at all the implications of the disciples seeing Jesus um, with his divinity and glory and power on play. And, and we'll look at the question, um, what are Moses and Elijah doing on the mountain? You guys remember the story I'm talking about? We'll get there. What are Moses and Elijah doing on the mountain? There's a there's an old idea. There, there are several ideas and concepts about why Moses and Elijah are speaking with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But probably the most um, thorough and convincing and beautiful arguments to be made that I think there's actually some validity to is this. Moses and Elijah represent a lot. And so, uh, again, we'll talk about the representations. But the, but the first thing is that in Exodus 33, Moses prays that God would show him his glory. So Moses sometimes represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets, but Moses is also the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. Um, but Moses and Elijah also represent um, hunger and desire to see God's beauty and glory. So in Exodus 33, Moses said, please show me your glory. This is verse 18 through 20. He said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see my face and live. Moses expresses a unique hunger. Elijah in his kind of darkest hour, you remember Jezebel says she's going to take his life after he's destroyed the false prophets on Carmel. Uh, says he came to a cave and lodged and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Now here we have two instances of two prophets standing on mountains and seeing God's glory. In, in Elijah's case, um, remember, he says, a, a strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. So Elijah's watching, listening, anticipating the glory of God. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. He went out and stood before the entrance of the cave. He wrapped his face so that he wouldn't see and stood out before the entrance of the cave. 
So, so not only are they prophets, not only do they represent the law and the prophets, we can talk about that in a minute, but I think that they represent hunger, men who really desired to see the glory of the Lord. In all of Israel, there was no one who walked with God the way that Moses walked with God. In Elijah's day, of course, there's a little bit of like self-loathing in Elijah's statement when he says, uh, there's no one else who's bowed their knee, uh, who hasn't bowed their knee. And God says, oh, there's 7,000 others, Elijah. But, but on the other side, like notice that there was a lot of idolatry. And Elijah's saying, no, like on all this idolatry in Israel and all of this backsliding and all of this spiritual staleness and all of this apathy and all the lethargic spiritual men, I alone stand and refuse to bow. Again, it's not a perfect statement, but there's some truth. Seth was sharing this morning some things he felt as we prayed last night, and it reminded me of the story I wanted to share with you. Um, in the Brownsville Revival, um, Tommy Tinney, who was an old preacher, uh, came to speak. And I remember watching this. I was probably, you know, like first year of ministry school. I was laying up late at night watching videos of preachers at Brownsville. And Tommy Tinney, oh, he wrote a book. I can't remember what it's called. That was really great. What's it called? Yeah, God Chasers was great. Um, and he was standing uh, in the pulpit and he said something like, um, I'm intimidated to, to speak to you today because um, there were so many great men of God in the room. Um, Dr. Michael Brown, who is like um, maybe an alien. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how he remembers as much information as he remembers. Um, like there's, there's just a different level of, intellectual gifting that he carries. And uh, Steve Hill was like such an incredible evangelist, like just men of God. And Tommy Tenney comes to the pulpit and says something like, um, I'm not as gifted as these men and I'm intimidated by these men. But he said, but nobody will out hunger me. Um, and I remember being a, a, a young ministry school student and going, I don't know if you're allowed to say that. Like that sounds a little arrogant. And so I walked into the prayer meeting the next morning. We would pray, I don't know what time, seven or eight, we would pray every morning. And I walked in the next morning looking at all the other young men in the ministry school and said, I'm hungrier than you, and I'm hungrier than you, and I am hungrier than you. And it became kind of a joke, but it it wasn't a joke at the same time. And so uh, Pastor Seth and I, Seth went to ministry school with us. Uh, we went at the same time. Um, everyone else would go to play uh, Ultimate Frisbee or something, and our our mentor used to have a bookshelf in his closet and everyone else would be out playing Frisbee. And I would go, what are you doing with a Frisbee? I'm going to go meet with God. And I would go through all of his books and our mentor's closet. And, and we called his closet my bedroom because it's where I spent all my time on the face, like reading and studying. And kids would go to lunch for lunch break. And Pastor Seth and I would sit in the sanctuary together. This is kind of strange on that. We would both play the piano and we would sing and sing in tongues and just worship. And you say, you need an interpreter for that. No, we don't. There was no one in the room. It was just us. Um, and, and I remember, I remember this morning I was sitting with a pastor once. I'm nine, 19 or 20. I'm sitting with a pastor who I didn't know that well. And he asked me a question. I don't remember what he asked me. It was something like, um, so why do you feel called to ministry or what, what do you think God's going to do with your life? This kind of vague question. And I said with spiritual immaturity is a thing, right? Like I'm just, just a little bit of immaturity, but, but I remember saying to him, I said, I don't know anyone hungrier than me. <laughs> and, and, and part of it was so arrogant, but part of it was like, no, like I, I, so pastor Seth and I would walk into a meeting and I still try to sing louder than him. It's like, he's got the microphone. 
I got it. All the breath in my lungs. I'll pray longer than you. I'll sing louder. Seth and I used to compete about who knew the Psalms better. I know the Psalms better than you, Seth. I'm just kidding. I don't, but it wasn't a competition, but there was a, an identity that for both of us and for many of you, I know too, there was an identity that we began to carry of, I'm not going to walk into a room of believers and, and be the lackluster stale one who sits on my hands. When I walk in the room, I'm going to sing. I'm going to dance and I'm not going to live my life in a way that's just about sports or leisure. Like I'm going to get alone with God and hunger after God. And that kind of, again, I don't know if Tommy Tinney was right or not for saying that. I'd have to really think about that. But that kind of nobody can out hunger me posture really took hold of my life. And, and, and I understand there are natural giftings, right? Like I don't think that I'm the most intellectually gifted person in the world. I'm also not the dullest crayon in the box. Like I'm, you know, whatever. Um, but but gifting, smart men can be dead and cold. Like, I'm really not that entertained by smart men. Um, a man who's known God in the place of prayer, my ears perk up. My spiritual heart, spirit perks up. And, and I think there's a call in this house. There's an identity that this church has carried long before me um, to plant their feet in this region and say, we're going to be the hungry ones. And we're going to press. And we're going to pray. And we're going to believe. And and there was a religious spirit or a striving spirit that I definitely gave to in the sense of like I was competing with everybody and would probably tell you that. I would tell you that jokingly, but it wasn't a joke. Um, we need to crucify that, right? Like we're not competing with anybody. We're definitely not competing with any other churches. or I'm not competing with any other pastors. I want to see hunger in our region spread and flourish. But I say all that to say that what, what you see in Moses and Elijah is not just a prophetic gift. What you see in Moses and Elijah is not just the giving of scripture in Moses' life or law. What you see in Moses and Elijah is hunger, desperation for the glory of God to see. So in Moses' kind of low point in his life in Exodus 33, he says, show me your face. And, and God says, you, you, you can't see my face and live. But the, the beauty and the wonder of this text today is that Jesus is the incarnate God, the incarnate second person of the Trinity. He is the son of God. And it's as if, and I know this isn't perfect logic, but there's a mystery here. It's as if God's answering the prayers and the hunger of Moses and Elijah thousands of years later as they stand on the mountain and they behold the face of God in the second person of the Trinity transfigured with all of his glory. It's like, it's like God says to Moses and Elijah, I saw your hunger and I saw your devotion and I saw your passion. I know it's been a, a while now, but get on the mountain, just like Elijah was on the mountain covering his face and Moses was on the mountain saying, show me your glory, but he only saw the backside. So God says to Moses and Elijah, even after their death, like, let me put you on the mountain and you're going to get to witness with these three disciples, my glory. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, but not like this. This seeing that they see on the Mount of Transfiguration is totally unique, wild, trippy, beautiful. Why are Moses and Elijah there? It's, it's as if God's saying, I saw your hunger, and today you'll see my face. And, and before we move forward, I, I think as a house, man, we were, we were,
praying last night and left in, in the upper room at the coffee shop. And um, man, an old pastor said to me one time, he said, Caleb, the best preachers are worshipers. And I, that stuck with me, that rung in my, in my head. And so in this last season, I've been trying to lead worship again. I, n- not for you. I'm not going to do that. That's embarrassing. Um, but in the prayer room, I'll lead worship every now and again. Um, because there's just, there is something strange about like, why does David have a harp? And why, like, there's, there's something about musicians in our culture. I'm just talking now that has become effeminate. Like if you're a musician and you have to be like a little bit artsy and, um, maybe girly and it's, and that's neither here nor there. I'm not trying to make a statement except for to say, like, I don't view myself as being particularly effeminate. Um, I am curvy and that's a problem in my life, but, um, I didn't, I didn't choose that. That came with the territory, Mr. Potato Head. Um, I, I think what we need in this hour and in our house are men and, and women too, for sure. But men who will step up and, and press in men like David, 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 gonna take your head off if you cross him. Like, okay. He's, he's, he's got a, this is why God says you can't build the temple, David. There's way too much blood behind you. But, but David, this, this military man with a harp writing Psalms, why is David writing Psalms? Not because it like, furthers his military power. He's writing Psalms because he has a heart for the glory of God. And why does he want to build the temple? Because he wants God's presence. And why does he have this tabernacle where people pray 24 hours a day and worship? Because he's a man after God's presence. And and we need men who are not just academic. We need men whose faith is not just an intellectual conviction. We need men with hunger. We need women with hunger. In, In our house, we need musicians who excel in their gifting who, who are willing to sit behind a piano or a guitar and bless and pursue God because we're a people of hunger. Mark chapter 9, verse 1 through 13. Jesus speaking. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to him, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. That's Exodus imagery. A cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they saw, they saw no one but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He says to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. How is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So let's let's pick up where we left off and just jog our memory as to the flow of Mark's narrative. Remember, Mark eight was the was the pivot point where Jesus says to the disciples at Caesarea Philippi, "Who do you say that I am?" Peter responds and says, "You are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of the Most High." And God, and Jesus responds to Peter by saying, 
Um, blessed are you, uh, Peter, Barjona, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but the spirit. So they get the first thing right. Jesus is God, or Jesus is Messiah. Second thing that happens is Jesus tells them, I am going to suffer. Plainly, it says, he tells them plainly, Messiah will be, Psalm 118, verse 23 through 24, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day of the Lord, the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So Jesus is teaching the disciples that the stone that will become the cornerstone must first be rejected. So he says to them, I'm the Messiah, but you don't understand my messianic role. You get my identity, but not my call. He says, second, I will suffer, die, and rise again. The third thing we learned as we move through Mark 8 is Jesus saying to the disciples, if anyone will follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and come after me. And so now he's the chosen one of God. He must be rejected and suffer. And if you want to follow me, you must be willing to suffer as well. And and we said from the text last week, it's not that Jesus is prophesying that every disciple will be martyred, but he is saying every disciple of Jesus must carry in their heart a willingness to die for the gospel if it's asked of them. That's such a challenge for us because we think the gospel is about our comfort. Um, But the gospel is actually about the glory of Jesus Christ filling the earth through through the preaching of the cross. So we learned those three things through Mark 8. And if you will, there's this kind of snowballing of revelation. Like their minds are being, oh, he's Messiah. Oh, you're going to die, what? Oh, instead of conquering Rome, we have to carry a cross so that Rome can conquer us? This flow, steady flow of revelation. But it's fascinating because it's only after they get the identity of Jesus and the death of Jesus, that I will bleed, I will be conquered, that God allows them to see the glory of Jesus. So he says to them first, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That's a challenging text for us. Um, Some suggest, and I, I think that probably the best interpretation here is not necessarily that Jesus is talking just about the transfiguration. Although the transfiguration is a foretaste of this promise. You guys understand what I mean? When Jesus says there's to his disciples, there's some of you standing here who will not die before you see the kingdom coming in power. When, when just the next line later, they see Jesus shining with glory, there's a good chance that Mark intends for us to receive the fact that the Mount of the Transfiguration is the, the foretaste of what the disciples will experience. You following that line of thought? Secondly, though, um, we underestimate or we underemphasize the fact that the kingdom coming with its power is not just the return of Jesus. Um, the kingdom co- came with its power at the resurrection. And at the ascension, when Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, in some sense, the dominion of God was established. And so we read the text and go, wait, they didn't see the return of Jesus. But I want you to see in your mind that when Jesus says, you'll see the kingdom in his power, he means that in the day of the disciples, they will experience, Experience the now and not yet. There is a now. You, are you guys following me? Do you understand what I mean by now and not yet theology? Like the kingdom is now, Jesus says. It is at hand. And it's not yet. 
Like the earth is not fully, finally restored. There's not total peace. There will be, not yet, but there will be. But there is a now. There's an expression of God's glory in the earth now. There is healing power in the Holy Ghost now. There is deliverance for the addict now. And so so Jesus says, you will see before you die the power of the kingdom in the earth. And the Mount of Transfiguration is the foretaste. It's this. It's the sense in which the disciples say, yeah, we get your Messiah. We're, we're wrestling with this idea that you're going to be rejected and suffer and die. And then you said, we have to be willing to die. And so, okay, we're going through that. We're still following you. So there's some commitment from Peter that says, all right, if I've got to be murdered for this gospel, I will. And Jesus says, now that you've got these three things in line, you've confessed to me as Messiah. You understand that there's a cross coming and you're willing to follow me with the entirety of your life. And Jesus says, let me take you on the mountain and show you my glory. So we're told in Mark's gospel that after six days, Jesus took them on a mountain. There's a chance that there's some Exodus imagery happening here where Moses brings um, Exodus 24, verse 1 through 2. God says to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with me. And so it seems like there was a staggering. The 70 stayed low. There were three who may have come up higher with Moses, but then Moses alone goes to the top to meet with God's glory. There's a chance that this image is being reshaken out because the disciples are going to stay at the bottom of the mountain, but three come up. And so is there a chance that God's Jesus is trying to replay this imagery before the disciples as they climb the mountain with the greater Moses. Peter, James, and John walk with Jesus up a mountain. They spend a lot of time alone with Jesus. And so it's not, it's not really rare for Jesus to want to be alone. Um, early in the morning, late at night, Jesus is alone with God a lot. And so I don't know that this is a particularly rare moment in their experience with Jesus. I don't know that they have this great expectation. They're just, here we go again. And because Luke's gospel actually tells us that when they got to the top of the mountain and Jesus was praying that the disciples went to sleep. And it's really interesting because the disciples have seen and heard Jesus pray. And they say to Jesus, teach us to pray like you pray. Like we're, we're fascinated and inspired by your prayer life. But you do it a lot. So sometimes we just kind of doze off while you're, while you're pressing on. And if that's not the heart of a believer, I don't know what it is. I want to know how to pray. And every now and then God says, wake up, what are you doing? The text read that as they got to the top of the mountain, Jesus transfigured before them. The Greek there is metamorpho, where we get like metamorphosis. It just means that he transformed. He changed before their eyes. The veil was torn so that they could behold his glory. Again, don't lose the context. I'm the bleeding, suffering servant, the rejected stone. Now look at my glory. It's fun to remember that Mark's gospel is Peter's telling of the story to John Mark, who's writing it down for him. John Mark described Peter's telling of the story. And so it's fun to think of um, verse, for instance, verse 2, verse 3, forgive me. His garments became radiant and exceedingly white, 
as no bleach on earth can whiten them. It's like Peter's trying to tell the story, and he's like, I don't, it was just a lot of white. And we're reminded that, that when Moses met with God and came down, his face shone with glory. But Jesus is not meeting with God and having a secondary glory. Like the, the glory actually shines from within Jesus, from out of his own being. He is the glory that Moses carried on his face. It's not a secondhand glory. It's his own glory that they see. Shining off of his clothes as no, so much white and light as they gaze upon the Son of God. And then appeared Moses and Elijah. Again, what are they doing here? Again, I think it's God honoring the hungry ones, saying, you, you wanted to see my face, but no one would see my face and live. But in my son's incarnation, when my son put on flesh, fully God and fully man, there is this mystery in which when people see him, they see my face. And so Moses and Elijah, you prayed, you asked, you cried. Thousands of years later, for Moses' sake, I'm going to allow you to stand on a mountain again and behold the incarnate Son of God displaying his true nature, deity, the fullness of who he is. And I think Moses and Elijah are satisfied. Hunger satisfied. There are several other reasons um, given that Moses and Elijah might be there. One, sometimes people will say that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets, and that may be true, and that Moses and Elijah, um, by being there, we see that the law and the prophets are both about Jesus and submitted to Jesus. I think that's perfectly true. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. They longed for Jesus. There's a sense in which Moses and Elijah have really strange endings of their lives. So in Deuteronomy 34, verse 5, it says that Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. It's always been taught that the he who buried Moses was God, which is a strange thing to think that, that God would pick up the body of Moses and lay it in the dirt. The scripture says, because if people knew where Moses was buried, they would come and worship him. Elijah, on the other hand, was swept away in that chariot of fire, remember? It's one of the reasons first century Judaism was so fascinated with the idea of Elijah coming, because Elijah never died. Maybe the significance, again, is that they're both prophets. So, for instance, Deuteronomy 18.15 is a key messianic text. Judaism always read this text, quoted this text, as they looked for the Messiah. And Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. So Moses says, God will one day raise up a prophet like me from among you. It is to him you shall listen. So the father says, this is my beloved. Listen to him. There's a sense of this being fulfilled. The one like Moses has been raised up. Of course, Elijah is interesting too, because the prophecy from Malachi that spins around Behold, Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So Jesus says again in Mark 8, I am Messiah, 
I will suffer, be rejected, bleed. You must be willing to suffer and be rejected. And by the way, here's my glory. Moses and Elijah, watch it. I'm greater than Moses, Elijah. That takes you to Hebrews 1. He's the greater Moses. He's, he's more powerful than any prophet. And then we're told, and this is really funny, okay? So if you're not listening, you want to listen now because this is funny. Um, we're told in verse uh, 5, Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tents or three tab- tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. There's so much speculation about why Peter would say this. Is he thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles? What, what is he saying? Why, why is he offering to build tents? Well, Peter tells you why he's offering to build tents in verse 7. Again, this is Peter telling Mark how things happened. This is Peter's account. Peter says, for he did not know what to answer because he was afraid. In other words, Peter's saying, uh, I said to Jesus, you know what? We could build a tent for everybody because I didn't have any idea what to say. It was scary. People come up with all these fascinating concepts of why Peter said it. Peter told you, I didn't, I didn't know. How, do you, how are you supposed to respond to this glorious moment? Peter doesn't know how to be quiet. Then we're told that a cloud covers them. And that's obviously like Exodus imagery of the cloud by day. And when Moses climbs the mountain to meet with God, there's a cloud that covers. And the cloud here, um, it symbolizes that the Father is present. And out of the cloud, the Father speaks with authority. So Peter says, we're going to build a, we're going to build some tabernacles, Jesus. It's going to be nice. <laughs> and the cloud that's resting over, Peter didn't know someone else was there. Peter didn't cognitively grasp or think through the fact that there was another present. And so it's not just Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, but the Father it descends in the cloud. And the Father's voice thunders, this is my beloved. Listen to him. And it's the authority of the Father saying to Peter, James, and John, you don't understand the cross. You didn't understand the suffering that Jesus is going to endure. You don't get the fact that one day you might have, you don't understand. But I'm telling you right now, as you gaze upon the glory of Jesus transfigured before you with brilliant light, this is my beloved, listen to him. Obey him. Perk up your ears to his instruction. They start the journey back down the mountain kind of sheepishly. Like, what do you do after that? Finally, someone breaking the awkward silence says to Jesus, what, well, um, what, is it, what does it mean about Elijah coming again? Like, Elijah was there. What, what, is, what is this thing with Elijah? And Jesus says, um, Elijah has come and suffered. So he's, he's giving this idea that John the Baptist participated in the spirit of Elijah. And he's also showing them, there's a, there's a nuance there. He's trying to show them that in the same way that Elijah must come again and suffer, he must suffer. So he's instilling this kind of Old Testament motif that servants of God, Jeremiah is thrown in the bottom of a pit. Church history teaches that Isaiah's head was sawed off, and you kind of get that intention in, in, in Hebrews, uh, in the hall of faith. Um, so he, he's, he's drawing this Old Testament theme out in which every servant of God um, suffers at the hands of wicked men. And Jesus is showing them that he will be the chief sufferer. Now, it's a wild story. A beautiful moment. 
but we're, we're led to left, we're, we're left to ask, um, what does this mean for us? Like, how should the church of God read this text, study this text, and properly respond? How does this passage of scripture bear weight down upon me? If the spirit of God is here in the room, which he is, molding and shaping our hearts and minds and will, what, what is God leading us to grasp? First, Jesus is the glorious beloved son who should be listened to. The glory of Jesus expressed. One day the trumpet will sound and you will see the glory of Jesus Christ as he descends. Worship him and no other. Climb the mountain, behold his glory and worship. And it's interesting that, man, I don't have time to hash all of this out. But Moses, when he says, show me your face, God, he's tired and frustrated and weary. And he says, show me your face. And, and, you know, the old Don Potter song. The idea is that, God, if I could just see your face, I can keep running. And Elijah's asking, God, kill me. Please, just kill me. And God says, I'll show you my, I'll show you my glory, Elijah. So, so now what we find is that the church or the people of God, when they see God's glory, the, the revelation of who God is actually becomes the motivator to keep pressing in obedience to God, even when your flesh is tired, protesting, weary, and sick. When you're depressed and stressed, the church lowers herself to the place and says, show me your face, and I can keep going. But so the idea of, this is my son, obey, listen. We need to cry out, God, show us your son. Give us the strength of your spirit to obey, to listen. And, and, and second, this is, I think, obvious from our time today. The Christian faith is not one which says, come to Jesus, have your sins forgiven, and live the rest of your life in peace and happiness. Um, it, it, in one sense, it does say that, right? Like, we do have our sins forgiven, we do have peace. But the Christian faith says, um, come to Jesus, repent of your sins, be washed by the Lamb, be totally forgiven, be adopted into God's family, be a son or a daughter, and then live the rest of your life in radical intimacy with the glory of God. So you, you don't get saved and then, and then spend the rest of your life like totally fascinated with college football. Okay, I'm watching football right now too. There's no shame. Um, but it's, but it's, but, but our, our, our wanting to watch TV and be entertained, listen to music, the things that we do to experience God's creation and be, and be uplifted by God's beauty, those things are so secondary. Third, fourth on the list of my priorities. One is beholding God's glory. The veil was torn in the temple as imagery to say that as Christians, you can now come and meet with me. And the spirit was given so that the church, Jesus says, it's better for you that I go, because I'm going to give you the spirit. You're going to meet with the spirit. You're going to have in your possession the, the presence of the third person of the Trinity. He's going to be with you all the time. So the church can't say, we've come to the cross, we've had forgiveness, and now we just go about our nice lives. We gather every now and then to sing songs. The church says, thank you for the cross, because now we have the glory of God and the person of the Holy Ghost available to us to drink and to worship and to minister and to be filled with the Spirit. And so, for instance, 
Paul, on his Damascus road, was knocked off the donkey. His eyes were... He has this encounter with God that changed the direction of his life. And we all, in some sense, have that encounter where God changes our life. But that's not the only time Paul met with God. Paul says, I know a man who was caught up into the third heaven. And the things he saw and experienced, I can't tell you. What is he saying? Not only was I knocked off my donkey at Damascus, but I have heavenly visions where I'm caught up in the glory of God. It wasn't a one-time event. It was a desperation and hunger for more of God. And for more of God. And for more of God. Show me your face and we'll go a little further. I'm tired and weary. Show me your glory. I could go a little further. When I'm exhausted, I get in the place of prayer and I say, fill me with the Holy Ghost and I'll go a little further. But the person... The presence of the Holy Ghost becomes our primary means of strength and hope and, 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 and our source of real um, spiritual power. And so I think a really good draw from this text in a roundabout way is the church cannot ignore the Holy Ghost. Be- because, because in the church age, after the ascension of Jesus, we were given the third person of the Trinity to see and behold and to meditate upon Jesus. Like we need the Holy Spirit. When God says to Jesus, says about Jesus, this is my beloved. This is my beloved. The New Testament theology is that when you were saved and born again, you were grafted into Jesus. You were in union with Jesus. We are now in Christ. My life is hidden with God in Christ. And so in a sense, when God says, this is my beloved, I have to become his beloved in Jesus. And, And so Part of the benefit of being the beloved of God is being free of shame, free of guilt, free of striving. I have this liberty in Christ where I know that I know that I know that he just loves me, period. And you cannot like me, get over it. He loves me, right? Like that kind of confidence that we're all striving to get to in the gospel. And then, it, and then it's there that we can say, I, I am the beloved of God. And in the same sense that Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father do, we start to obey and listen. We walk in this union, communion with God that expresses itself in hunger and in holiness. Hunger and holiness. I think those are twin sisters of what the church needs to recover today. Hunger and holiness. Why don't you stand to your feet?